Well, we are in the middle of our series, Fresh Off the Vine. It's kind of our summer message series. We're looking at the fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul first introduces to us in a letter to the uh, churches in the region of Galatia. He, he writes this about uh, these fruit. He, he lists them out. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we've been kind of working our way through some of these this summer. Uh, we got a couple more that we're going to hit. But, you know, you kind of look at that, that list, and there's some really cool stuff up there. We've, we've already talked about love. You know, it's like, who doesn't want love, you know? And, and joy, we'd, we'd pay to experience joy. Peace, man, in our world and the kind of lives that we live, you know, it's like we're desperate for peace. Patience, like I want that yesterday. You know, all these things... But this morning we're going to be talking about goodness, kind of being good. And maybe it's just me, but doesn't the word good kind of sound sort of, eh? yeah, it's kind of like, not, it's not boring. It's just sort of lost its wonder, you know, good. Like, how was the movie? Oh, it was good. No, not great. You know, it's like we write books from good to great because like good's okay, but it's not really exciting. So it's kind of striking to me that one of Jesus' most unforgettable encounters with somebody centered on that word, good. It's recorded for us in Mark chapter 11, chapter 10. Uh, A man comes to Jesus one day and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus had received lots of exalted titles in the New Testament. He was, you know, son of man, son of God, son of David, son of the most high, uh, Messiah, but now, without blinking, he stops, and, and he doesn't answer the question right away. He starts by making a big deal about that one little word, good. Jesus says, good? Like, like why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, that probably surprised this guy a little bit, because that kind of greeting, like good teacher, that was not uncommon in that part of the world back then. He would have expected Jesus to say something polite back to him, like, oh, a noble seeker of truth. You know, let me tell you, that kind of a, a deal. He's just kind of fishing for a compliment. And every society kind of has, has rules about that, right? For example, like men, if, you're, if your wife asks you, you know, hey, do these clothes make my hips look big? The correct answer is, well, no, you don't even look like you have hips at all, right? You know, it's like, no, no. Yeah, you know, so, he, you know, it just kind of rules about being polite, like polite conversation. The guy is being polite. Good teacher. Doesn't really mean anything by it. Kind of like somebody going out the door after the service going, good message, pastor. You know, like, don't expect anyone to take that too seriously. They're, you know, they just got to say something and nice shoes sounds kind of weird, you know? So he's just being polite, but, but Jesus doesn't respond politely. And he starts to get us into this fruit that we call goodness. And we often kind of confuse goodness with being nice or, or polite or trying to get people to approve of us or, or like us. But God's goodness is much wilder and, and stronger and more challenging and, and riskier than just being nice and polite, you know? Being a good Minnesotan. Jesus doesn't respond politely. He takes this very seriously. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God. And you notice he doesn't deny being good. He just is pointing out what's at stake here, what's being talked about. And then he begins to define goodness. He's like, oh, well, you know the commandments. You know, don't murder, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. And the man's like, oh, teacher, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. You know, I, I grade out surprisingly well on the goodness scale. You know, I was like, I, I've been good. I, I clear that goodness bar pretty easily. And Jesus is like, okay, okay. 
And just as this man's about to walk away, he says, just one more thing. You guys ever watched the old, there's an old TV show, Columbo? Anybody ever seen Columbo? And he was just this detective who was kind of smarter than he appeared. And, and it just, his zinger at the end, when he's really going after somebody, he'd be done, oh, just one more thing. Just one more thing. So here Jesus says, just one more thing. Go sell everything you have and, and give to the poor. Then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He wanted to be good, but he didn't want to be that good. <laughs> and reflecting on this later with his followers, Jesus is like, hey, this guy's kind of in a tough spot. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And that kind of stunned the disciples. And it has surprised people ever since. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, maybe you've heard like uh, somebody go, oh, well, you see, there was a... Um, there was a, a, uh, a gate in Jerusalem to get to the temple and it, the nickname was the Needle Gate. And so it was low and for a camel to get through, it had to get down on its knees, you know, and, and kind of go through it. Anybody ever heard that before? It's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Uh, my New Testament professor is a scholar named Dr. Gary Burge and he writes about this and he said that story got made up probably by a rich guy looking for a loophole, you know. It's like, like oh, as long as I can be humble about it, you know, get, I can take my stuff with me. Now, if that were the case, the disciples would have been like, oh, wow, that sounds really hard, you know. Instead, they're like, no, that's impossible. Like, who can, nobody can do that. Now, there's lots of dimensions to that story that we can uh, look at some other time. But this morning, we're talking about the fruit of goodness. And so I want to focus on that one statement of Jesus. There is no one good except God alone. And in the time that's left, I want to talk, I give you two truths and, uh, that were contained directly in that statement and then an invitation. And the first truth is this, is there is such a thing as absolute goodness, and it is defined by God alone. See, we live in a society that, that tends to talk about right and wrong and good and evil as if they're just kind of a matter of personal taste, you know, it's, it's utterly relative, you know, like, oh, chocolate or vanilla, or, you know, like tea or coffee, caribou or Starbucks, you know, you might have a preference, I might have a preference, nobody's right, nobody's wrong. That's kind of the prevailing mindset of our society. There was a, a real fascinating uh, article in the New York Times a while ago uh, about the aim of higher education. The aim of higher education. This distinguished professor of political science at the University of Chicago gave what is an annual address called the aim, the aims of education to the incoming class. So, you know, like the new students would know what to expect. And he told them there are two goals the university will not pursue. Okay, The uh, first one is providing truth. Don't expect that here. He said, we expect you to figure out the truth if there is one. Anybody know what the tuition is for the University of Chicago? I looked it up this week. It's over $60,000. For that much money, I want a little truth. <laughs> it's like, like A little truth would be a good thing. The second thing this guy said you should not expect out of a university edu education was this. He says, don't expect us to provide moral guidance. That's a, this is a direct quote. He said, elite universities operate on the belief that there's a clear separation between intellectual and moral purpose. They pursue the former while largely ignoring the latter. We are collectively silent on the issue of morality. Now, his colleague at the time, a guy, guy named Stanley Fish, Dean of uh, Arts and Sciences at the University of Chicago, was kind of a big gun in, in higher education. He's talking about the, the role of higher education on students in our day. This is a direct quote of what he said. 
Because when he says, when it comes to having an effect on students, he says, you might just make these students into good researchers. You can't make them into good people. And you shouldn't try, he said. You could aim at making them smart. You know, you might aim at helping them, you know, like be able to get rich. Don't aim at trying to make them morally good. And the title of the article Fish wrote was Aim Low. I think he's doing a pretty good job. So, <laughs> now, Jesus is a teacher, but he's a different kind of education there. He's, he's, um, he says there is such a thing as transcendent goodness. And it's not about personal preference. It is woven into creation and deep in our hearts. We know better. We know better. C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says one of the ways that we know this is what he calls the law of human nature or the law of right and wrong. He says one of the ways we know about this comes from this universal human experience. How many of you have ever been in an argument before? Argue with somebody else? You know, like, no, you guys don't do politics. You don't do, okay. Never had any arguments with anybody, right? Okay, uh, we'll talk about uh, repentance back again. We've got to go back a little bit. Um, yeah, I, or how many of you have seen an argument? You've seen an argument, right? You've seen somebody else argue, right? Well, C.S. Lewis says, okay, whenever that happens, whenever you see somebody argue or, or experience that, it's like you don't hear people go, well, I've got this personal preference here, but I might be wrong. No, they say things like, well, that's not fair. Or that, you know, like, come on, you promised, or I was here first. They say things that reflect the fact that we have this inextinguishable sense uh, that there is a way that things ought to be. There, there is a right and there's a wrong. We've got this moral code, and we want things set right. Like, we're into justice. A lot of movies in our day, you know, that feature, like, action heroes or superheroes, uh, what they're at about at their core is what happens when justice gets violated. And Lewis says, the reality is anytime you see anybody argue, you know, like they're, they're trying to convince somebody of right and wrong, what you see is a conversation that reflects an innate sense that there is a way that things ought to be. There is such a thing as right and there is such a thing as wrong. We may not always agree on the details of what rightness or wrongness look like, but everybody carries within them this sense of, of oughtness. Where does that come from? Uh, that's why people argue. Paul puts it this way. He says, when outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There's something deep within them that echoes God's yes or no, right and wrong. Where does that come from? You want to know what goodness looks like? Look at God. Psalmist puts it like this. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Writers of Scripture, they never stop wondering at the sheer goodness of God. See, when a mind is spiritually sane and right, it is filled with thoughts about what a good guy the God is and what a good thing it is to be alive in His care, in His protection. He has never made a wrong call. Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God never held a grudge. It says, for the Lord is good and his mercy or his love endures forever. In all eternity, God has never spoken a deceptive word or engaged in an ungracious act. There's never been a prayer he hasn't heard. Never been a repentant sinner that he wouldn't forgive. Good and upright is the Lord. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. All His ways. 
This was the one message that, that Jesus wanted people to understand about his father. The Apostle John, when he's an old man, he's summarizing Jesus' teaching. He starts his letter off with this. He says, this is the message that we have heard from Jesus and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's our God. He's never had a dark thought, never said a dark word, never done a dark thing. That's our God. You ever wonder what God is like? God is light. God never aims low. Goodness exists and God defines the category. He is good all the time. But there is another part of Jesus' statement that's not such good news. Because according to Jesus, outside of God, who else fits that category of holy and good? All good. Nobody. There's no one good except God alone. Now this is where people start to check out. We've got difficulty with Jesus' statement because we all suffer from something that uh, social scientists call the self-serving bias. Self-serving bias. Okay, And, And basically, part of what this refers to is sort of that universal human tendency to underestimate my shortcomings you know, to kind of compare myself to other people and think, well, you know, I'm doing better than I actually am. Or to take credit for stuff that's, that's uh, you know, that I don't really deserve or exaggerate my own successes. This is one of the most widely documented findings in all of social science. They did a survey of 829,000 high school students. Okay, they, they did this survey and they asked this question. How do you rate yourself kind of on a scale, how would you rate yourself on your ability to get along with, with other people? Would you say you're, you're above average or below average? Okay, above average or below average? Now, by definition, 50% should be above, a, uh, above average and 50% should be below average, right? You got 100%, 50% above, 50% below. What percentage of these high school students actually thought they were above average in their ability to get along with other people? Just turn to the person next to you. Take a guess. The actual answer? 100%. 100% of high school students thought, well, you know, I'm above average in my ability to get along with other people. And another, it said 25% of them thought they were in the top 1%. <laughs> top one in their ability to get along. Now, this is not just a problem high school students have. Uh, um, academic setting, like uh, colleges, universities, schools, 95% of all faculty members, 95% rated themselves above average in their performance as teachers and scholars. And these are real smart people. I'm above average. People in the hospital, because they were injured uh, in an accident that they caused by driving badly, they rate themselves above average drivers. And preachers suffer from this, okay? Pastors do. Like who, who, we have to teach on texts like Romans 12, where it says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. More than 90% of pastors consider themselves to be above average preachers. 90%, okay? And last example for you. When people are explained the self-serving bias, you know, and they, they understand that concept, the vast majority of people say, I am above average in my ability to handle the self-serving bias. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, this is a universal problem. And in my humble opinion, nowhere is a self-serving bias more serious than when it comes to people's assessment of how they're doing in the goodness factor. In fact, in one study, uh, the average person thinks he or she is twice as likely to obey the Ten Commandments as anyone else. Twice as likely. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Of course, as long as I compare myself to other people, which is what we do, right? You know, you can always find somebody who's doing worse than you. And so as long as I do that, like I grade out pretty well. But we have a God who when it comes to the goodness factor, He never aims low. Never had a dark thought. Never said a dark word. Never done a dark deed. And that's His plan for creation. Those of you guys who know the Bible pretty well, like, when in the Bible did anyone ever encounter God, this, this holy, transcendent God, and come away saying, well, you know, from a moral standpoint, I, I grade out surprisingly well. When does that ever happen in the Bible? Isaiah encounters God. His response is, woe, woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the, the Lord Almighty. I, I'm in serious trouble. Peter one day has this experience with Jesus, realizes what goodness really looks like, and Peter's response is, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. That's Peter. One day the Apostle Paul, who thought he was doing pretty well, had this blinding vision of the reality of God. And later on in the book of Romans, he writes, there is no one righteous, no one who does good all the time, not even one of us. The reality, according to the writers of Scripture, that these people who encountered God, is that in light of what God intended for the human soul, uh, sin has twisted the human soul in ways that are devastating. And we usually don't even see it. There is such a thing as transcendent goodness. And God defines that category. But nobody else is in that category. We got this problem. And so there's this invitation See, Jesus came to earth so that we could know what goodness looks like. And he is now receiving into his community, into his friendship, people who do not clear the goodness bar on their own. You don't have to try harder to be good, he says. Just come be my friend. Just be my friend. Let me lead you. Let me forgive you. And then he starts this this goodness revolution. Starts changing people. Corrupt and greedy tax collector named Zacchaeus really does change. Jesus becomes his friend and he decides to go straight. He becomes honest and he becomes generous. And a woman who is guilty of adultery becomes one of Jesus' friends and she becomes faithful. And a self-righteous persecutor of the church named Paul becomes its humble servant. Jesus starts kind of a goodness revolution that as a matter of historical record changed the ancient world. And I was thinking this week, what if Jesus started a goodness revolution right here? Do you ever ever think like what this country would look like if it got hit by this epidemic of goodness? Like nobody would ever have to lock a door, lock up their car. You know, no kid in a city would ever have to kind of recoil, worried about something that might have sounded like a gunshot. Nobody would have to worry about what what kind of neighborhood they they were in. No family dynamics would cause tears. What if there was a goodness revolution in our state? Or or our city? 
Like, what if there was a goodness revolution in our church? And resources just flowed and, and never had to worry about those anymore. And, and we were able to serve people and messages never went over time. And it was just like this goodness revolution just through, through all of us. What would it take for that to happen? What if a goodness revolution were to start in you? What would that look like? In your heart, in your mind, your relationships, with your resources, with your work. We've been talking a lot about abiding with Jesus. One of the messages I, I often reemphasize with students is you become like the people that you hang around with the most. You become like the people you hang around with the most. We're talking about abiding with Jesus, doing life with Jesus, hanging out with him. Now, it seems to me kind of a funny thing like how a word like good can be kind of superficial in, in some situations, but it can be life-changing in another. It's like, like when parents drop their kids off with grandma and grandpa or with a babysitter. You know, they'll often say to them something like, be good, you know, be good. Does that ever work? Like, do you think that ever makes any difference at all? Like, oh, well, I was going to stick a spaghetti noodle up my sister's nose, but, you know, mom said be good, so I guess I won't. It's just something parents say, except one time. There was a documentary uh, a number of years ago where this old woman was being interviewed. She was over 80, had, had white hair, wrinkles. Um, she's being interviewed because when she was a young girl, she had been on the Titanic. And she and her mom had climbed into a lifeboat, but her dad stayed on the ship, on the Titanic. And he knew he was never going to see his daughter again. He knew he was going to die, and she would grow up without him. And so he stood on the deck of that ship, and he looked at his little girl. And he said the last words he would ever say to her, I love you. Be a good girl. Be a good girl. It had been 80 years, and she said there had never been a day in her life that she didn't think about those words. They weren't just words because he gave his life for her. Because she had seen what goodness looked like. And so have we. Next week, we're going to gather around the table and remember our Father who gave up his life through Jesus for us. Our Father who invites us not to try harder, but to do life with him. Just abide with him. Spend time. Allow his Holy Spirit to bear the fruit of goodness in our life. Now sometimes as a church, we, uh, we celebrate communion and it feels, I don't know, maybe you don't have this, but sometimes it feels like a tacked on extra thing. In the service, it's like, oh, oh yeah, we got to do communion. Or, oh, we can't do as many songs. Or, yeah, we got communion in there. We'll stick it in there. Next week, it's going to be different. Next week, we're kind of spend some, some time just focusing uh, on this meal of remembrance. We've got sp some special musical guests. Uh, kind of have a, like a mini concert as well. So you definitely want to be here for that. But I just want to invite you. Um, sometimes we say, like at the beginning of the service, like prepare your hearts to celebrate this communion. I want you to start now. We're going to get together next week. Just spend this week. Reflect on the goodness of God. Maybe go back through the verses that we talked about this morning. I listed them all out for you on the, in your worship folder. Just think about God's goodness. Just meditate on that. Pray. pray uh, praise God for being such a good God. And then we're going to gather together here next week. And we're going to celebrate together his love poured out for us on the cross. Would you stand with me now for closing prayer? God, we thank you that you are a good God. You're a good Father. You're just 
good. And, and God, I just pray that that word might not be casual in our usage, that we would understand goodness as it was displayed through Jesus Christ who came to show us what the Father was like. Lord, I, I just pray that uh, you would start a revolution of goodness in our own hearts, in our lives, that we would become more like you because we're spending time with you. Lord, just bear that fruit in our lives. We, we look forward to being together next week, to celebrating the Lord's Supper together and, and just making that kind of a focal point of our time together. Lord, just be with us this week. Now, give us wisdom to know what to do with this message, with what we've heard here this morning. And then give us the courage to do it. And we ask all these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed.